maybe they're not soothsayers in Canto 20. Maybe they're just plain old magicians. <laughs> Let's change the whole game now that we're at the end of it. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante, the only podcast that slow walks through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in Canto 20 of Inferno. We are in the fourth pocket of the Sins of Fraud, the fourth evil pouch. And we are amongst the soothsayers, maybe. Or we might be amongst another set of people. We've been through a whole set of classical representations. And Virgil has had his longest single speech in all of comedy. Our pilgrim's about to ask him some questions. And then Virgil is going to carry on for the rest of the canto. This is a canto controlled by Virgil in which he rewrites his own poem as well as the works of mm, essentially his contemporaries somewhere around there, Ovid, Stacey and Lucan. So let's finish out Canto 20 and talk about this most strange and meta-literary Canto of Inferno, lines 100 through 130. And I, Master, the story you've told is rock solid and prods me to take it on faith that any other would seem no more than dead coals. But tell me, of the people who make this procession before us, do you see any others who are worth pointing out? My mind keeps coming back to them alone. Then he said to me, That one there whose beard reaches down from his cheeks to his brown shoulder blades was, when Greece had been so emptied of males that you could hardly find one in a cradle, a sorcerer. And along with Calchas he foretold the best time to set sail from Aulus. Eurypolis was his name. You well know the spot where my high tragedy sings about him, because you know the poem from front to back. That other, who is so skinny around his hips, was Michael Scott, who truly knew how to play the fraudulent game of magic. See Guido Bonatti, an astente, who now wishes he'd kept his mind on his leather and threads, but repents too late. See the sad sack women who became diviners, abandoning their needles, their spools, and their spindles to cast dark spells with herbs and graven images. But come along now, for Cain with his thorns is setting on the cusp of the hemisphere's horns and setting on the waves below Seville. The night before last was already the full moon. You certainly remember it did you no harm when you were in the deep wood. We kept talking and going along thusly. And that's the end of the canto, with their talking and going along thusly, which in and of itself is one of the most loaded bits of the entire canto that is loaded for bear from the top to the bottom. So let's look at these figures and let's look at one snarky joke. It starts out with our pilgrim having heard Virgil rewrite his own epic, or as he's going to describe it, his tragedy, the Aeneid. It starts out with the pilgrim asking a question. Master, the story you've told is rock solid. Well, it's not rock solid. As we discussed in the last episode of this podcast, it's a complete rewriting of the Aeneid. Rewriting of a minor incident in the Aeneid, but it is a rewriting of it such that Virgil, poor Virgil, has to basically say that his own work might be fraudulent. <laughs> 
<laughs> so wild. And it prods me to take it on faith that any other would seem no more than dead calls. Yeah, you know what are those dead calls? Oh, that'd be called the Aeneid. Oh, it's so mean. Oh, it's just so harsh to poor Virgil. But tell me, the pilgrim goes on, of the people who make this procession before us, the people walking down in this evil pouch, do you see any others that are worth pointing out? My mind keeps coming back to them alone. Basically, what the pilgrim just said is, yeah, 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 that's great. That's great, all that stuff about Mantua and its founding. Great, nice, thanks, really rock-solid stuff. Okay, now back to these guys. Do you see, <laughs> see anything here that would attract my interest? Thereby cutting the legs out from under the entire stool of Virgil's longest speech. You realize in this canto that Virgil cut the legs out from under the pilgrim's stool because the pilgrim said early on, remember... I don't know if a person could be turned this way by palsy. I've never seen it. I don't even believe it could happen. So just trust me that I was crying about it. So in other words, don't focus on the physicality of it. Focus on my emotional state. And then Virgil turned around and cut the legs out of the emotional state by saying only an idiot would cry at the judgment of God. Only a fool, literally, would cry at the judgment of God. So Virgil cut the pilgrim off. Now the pilgrim cuts Virgil off. Yeah, yeah, that's a great tale you told. What about more of these people walking along this ditch? It's such a dismissive gesture. It's especially my mind keeps coming back to them alone as if, yeah, Manto, yeah, great. Thanks for telling me. And by the way, any other account of it would seem more than dead calls. Oh, as if just plunging the dagger in right there into his poetic forebearer, Virgil. It is a mean little twist, but I would argue that so much of this canto is mean twisting between the pilgrim and Virgil all throughout. This again, is the way writerly students and their masters come to blows. Let's see who else is down in the pouch. The first person Virgil points out is Eurypylus. Virgil says that he's an, a sorcerer who, along with Calchas, foretold the best time to set sail from Aulus. Uh, basically, here's the story. Uh, Eurypylus is sent, and by the way, I should say Virgil, not exactly right. Eurypylus is sent to the oracle at Delphi to get the word about when the Greeks should sail for Troy. He comes back with the message from the oracle. He doesn't interpret it. Instead, Calchas interprets it. Calchas is an Augur, who um, interprets the timing of when the Greeks should set sail. In the Ovidian telling of this bit, this is uh, they, this is the moment in which Calchas says that they can't set sail because Diana's anger is worked up against them. That's why the winds are against them. Diana's anger, and they can only appease Diana with the sacrifice of Iphigenia. And, you know, that's a whole story in and of itself. For now, let's just say that Eurypylus isn't really an auger, kind of. It seems, again, playing with source work, and it seems of a piece of the larger puzzle of this canto that it would land here at another figure that's slightly twisted. More importantly, let's talk about what Virgil refers to when he talks about the Aeneid. You know well, Virgil says, the spot where my high tragedy 
sings about him because you know the poem from front to back. This is the key. First of all, Virgil refers to what we would now say as the epic of the Aeneid as his high tragedy. And you might say, how is the founding of Rome by Aeneas a tragedy? Well, it is an unfinished work, and it does end at a particularly bloody point with the killing of Turnus. Without getting into the plot of the Aeneid, let us just say that the place where it ends is not exactly a happy ending. And certainly Aeneas is going to show no mercy to the inhabitants of the Italian peninsula as he goes about the founding of Rome. Many critics since Dante see the Aeneid as a tragedy, and many medievals, in fact, interpreted the Aeneid as a tragedy because of its strange ending and because tragedy doesn't mean what you think it means. Because tragedy, at least in a medieval context, doesn't necessarily mean sad. Don't think Shakespeare and King Lear. Instead, think of tragedy as high. The word to focus on here is my high tragedy. Tragedy is the loftiest of genres. It is the highest style. It is the loftiest place a writer can get to. And the important word here might be high for you as a modern to hear it. Of course, Virgil is calling attention to the fact that if you know his poem back to front, then you're going to question Manto and Eurypolis. Sinon's account of Eurypolis isn't exactly trustworthy in the Aeneid. You're going to question both of these sources because if you know the poem well, you're going to know they're being rewritten into comedy, thereby nudging us in the ribs from the poet, but also calling attention to what Virgil wrote, tragedy versus comedy. And I mean by that, that our pilgrim is engaged in the journey from which the poet will write comedy. And the pilgrim's journey is to become the poet who can write comedy. Here, in a place in which classical sources have been reconfigured, Virgil names the genre of his own work, high tragedy. That seems incredibly important, having come through Dante naming his own work, comedy at the beginning of the circle of fraud. And now here we have Virgil talking about tragedy. We know this canto is literary to its very bones. Virgil now goes on to list other figures walking along with their heads screwed around on their necks. He first comes across Michael Scott. Michael Scott was a scholar, probably from Scotland, who himself was highly educated and made his way all the way to Toledo in Spain, when Toledo was a center of learning. There, Michael Scott learned Arabic and learned enough Arabic from the scholars in Toledo that he was ultimately able to get into the court of Frederick II down in Sicily and elsewhere and translate the Arabic translations of Aristotle into Latin. Only Dante sees this figure as somehow malevolent. This figure helped preserve Aristotle for the modern world 
Arabic scholars had preserved Aristotle by translating him into Arabic, and Scott, Michael Scott, took Scott, it's really Michael the Scotsman, so we should just say Michael. Michael took these Arabic translations and got them in partially into Latin. If you'd like to know more about this, I cannot more highly recommend Violet Mahler's The Map of Knowledge. This book is essentially Mahler's attempt to say that our notions of the Renaissance are misfounded because Arabic scholars kept Greek learning alive through much of what we now call the Dark Ages. And the notion that somehow these texts just re-erupted in European culture is bogus. They were being very much treasured by Arabic scholars across the Iberian Peninsula and across northern Africa. And Michael Scott is one of the people who is responsible for bringing those Arabic translations of the Greek philosophers into, not Greek, but Latin so that they could be read. Dante is hard on Scott, probably because he did write works on astrology. So he goes on then, Virgil, and points out two more contemporaries, Guido Bonatti. Guido Bonatti was a tiler, you know, who lays tiles for a living. He got into astrology and augury and other, as we would now say, black arts, and he became a counselor for Guido de Montefeltro, who we're going to meet on down farther in hell. We're going to meet old Guido himself. He was one of his counselors, and then Astente, or Maestro Benevenuto, Maestro Benevenuto, a soothsayer, well, he was a shoemaker, actually, from Parma, and thus he says, you know, he'd rather have kept his mind on his leather and threads, but he repents too late. Again, as the shoemaker who becomes a soothsayer, a fortune teller in the Convivio, Dante's own work Convivio, this fellow Astente, or Maestro Benevenuto, is, uh, is pointed out as perhaps the most famous person from Parma. Dante's actual words are, he would be noble if nobility were notoriety the shysterliness of the Parmans. You'll notice that we're coming down the line here, and then we end up with the sad sack women who became diviners, abandoning their needles, their spools, and their spindles to cast dark spells for, with herbs and graven images. So just think where we've been. We've been back with Amphiaraeus, Tiresias, Arons, Manto, these big classical figures. We came through Eurypolis. We're coming on down to Michael Scott, contemporary figures, Guido Benanti and Astente, or Maestro Benevenuto, and now we come down to very poor women who make their living off fortune-telling, palm reading, that kind of thing. You'll notice we've come from classical figures way down. We've come from aristocratic figures way down. We've come from figures like Manto, who, <laughs> who have children by river gods, way down to just the kind of run-of-the-mill fortune tellers. You'll notice that this whole thing is set up on a progression down, and I think that's important to the passage as a whole. While we can talk about the literary irony of it, we can talk about the complex, unbelievable metapoetics that go on in the, in the passage, and they're difficult to follow, and they deserve much more discussion than I can even give them. Well, we can talk about all of that, I think it's also important just to see the overall structure of it, the structure of it from the high to the very low. And that has something to do with high tragedy and what finally happens at the end of the passage. So let's look at the last bit of the passage. 
Virgil says, come along now for Cain and his thorns. That is Cain, the guy that killed Abel in the Bible story. Cain was said to uh, have a thorn bush that he either carried with him or hid behind. He was what we now call the man in the moon. And we've seen in the Middle Ages and in the uh, late patristic age, the man in the moon to be Cain with his thorns. Thorns. So what Virgil's saying is Cain with his thorns, that is the full moon, is setting on the cusp of the hemisphere's horns and setting on the waist below Seville. So again, you have to think about the world as positioned around Jerusalem as kind of its apex, or perhaps we'll see later, perhaps not its apex, but that's a whole different matter. We'll see that in Purgatorio, but consider Jerusalem as the apex of the globe. Consider then that the moon is setting in the west and over the waves of of Seville. And then Virgil does a very strange thing. He adds information to Canto 1 of Inferno. He says, and night before last was already the full moon. You certainly remember it. Did you no harm when you're in the deep wood? In no place in Canto 1 are we told that the moon is full. Once again, information has been added to those opening passages of Inferno. It's almost as if the poet is rewriting Inferno as he goes forward, rewriting those opening bits. And you'll note the no harm and deep wood and full moon. You'll notice that that's rather astrological, as if astro signs could bring you harm or good. One last little passing tweak toward astrology, because in the end, all of these guys may be magicians. We come down through this long list of fraudulent magic from Michael Scott and then go all the way back up to Amphiaraeus. And if you remember, which you don't have to, when Virgil lined out this circle of fraud in Canto 11, one of the categories he listed as fraudulent were the casters of spells. Now, we don't have to have Dante hold to what he thinks are going to be the sins of fraud in Canto 11 by the time we get down to Canto 20, especially if we see the poem in progress. However, it may give us a hint that these are not necessarily soothsayers, but casters of spells, magicians, you know, writers who cast spells over you, who hold you in their grip because you don't want to get away. You, who are here under the spell of Dante. In this canto of absurd literary references, absurd rewritings, and in which Virgil pulls the stool out from under the pilgrim, and the pilgrim pulls the stool out from under Virgil, there's one less act that happens, and that's when Dante pulls the stool out from under you. We kept talking and going along thusly, in troche. It's from the Latin interhoc. It means something like, I translated it thusly, something like meanwhile. This word is important because it's a word that Dante himself proscribes in his treatise on writing in the common tongue. Dante himself points to this word in troche as one of the words that is 
just almost too vulgar to write. Listen, if you're going to write in the vulgar tongue, don't use slang like this. And he uses this word there as an example of the slangy expression that wouldn't be really fit for good poetry if you're going to write it in the common tongue and not in Latin. And he ends this whole canto there because, get this, in a canto in which Virgil breaks the Aeneid, in which Virgil breaks Lucan and Ovid and Stasius, or in which Dante the poet breaks them in the background, Dante the poet then turns around and breaks his own work. He turns around and uses a word that he said you shouldn't use if you're going to write decent high poetry. Or perhaps we should look at it this way. Dante's not writing high poetry. This is something different because Virgil has just defined what he writes as high tragedy. And by using introke, we're being told instantly, this is not the high style. I like it that Dante has, even at the end of this canto, rewritten his own work because it has a great amount of hubris in it. That means that Dante is putting his own work, an essay on writing in the common tongue, on a level with Ovid Stasius <laughs> virtual. <laughs> It's insane. He's putting his own work up there and breaking it as if it, too, is another text that needs to be rewritten. And maybe that's the answer. All texts need to be rewritten and rewritten and rewritten. And what we hear from parents, siblings, grandfathers, grandmothers, the stories were told in church, in synagogue, in a mosque, wherever it is that you're told stories— Ultimately, you need to break those stories and make them your own. In so doing, you find your way out to a more authentic expression, even when you break the stories you've told yourself thusly. That was a tough canto, no doubt about it. We have not done it near enough service. We have bumped along in it (laughs) in ways that do not, in the end, sum up the canto in any way. But that's not my goal. My hope is that you'll leave here, this podcast, and go find other works like those by Hollander or Durling, other translations with their notes that help you even see more of the wild depths. This is almost impenetrable. In fact, the canto turns my head back around on my neck. The next canto is easier, if more vulgar. Subscribe to this podcast, rate it, let me know what you think about it. Contact me on social media anywhere, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook under my own name. And I will see you back here soon for a much less literary, much more vulgar canto. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.